Heads and welcome to uh, American okay. Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And I my don't think my pupils I'd... are still blown wide open <laughs> and I have a headache. So then the singing. Derek wants me know, to sing man. more. <laughs> so hello everyone and welcome to your weekly news update. So Derek, let's just get into it and talk about Saudi Arabia and particularly diplomatic progress that the Saudis are doing with Syria and Iran. Uh, yeah, there's a couple of things happening here. Uh, the uh, Saudis welcomed Faisal Mekdad, the Syrian foreign minister, to the kingdom on Wednesday. It's the first time a Syrian foreign minister has visited Saudi Arabia since 2011. Uh, so they are circling, renormalizing relations. This, the Syrian government had most of its relationships with most Arab states cut in 2011-2012 because of the civil war. Uh, but given that the war is effectively over and Bashar al-Assad's government has won, uh, Arab governments are now sort of slowly, grudgingly rebuilding relations with him. Uh, the UAE has sort of led the charge here, but the Saudis have lagged back a bit, and they're sort of the grand prize here as uh, the richest and, and most politically uh, dominant of the Arab states. So uh, this is kind of the the final boss, I guess, for the Syrians to re-engage relations with the Saudis. Mekdad's visit, apparently, uh, they talked about reopening embassies. Uh, they talked about resuming direct flights between the two countries. There have been rumors for a while now that the Saudis were planning to invite uh, Assad himself to attend an Arab League summit in Riyadh in May. I don't think that they came to any conclusion on that. Uh, during McDodd's visit, but you have to assume, I think, that, that things are trending in that direction. Uh, at the same time, the Saudis are also, of course, as we've talked about, uh, on the process toward normalizing relations with Iran. Uh, they, sent a, they sent a team of representatives to Iran over the weekend to talk about reopening the Saudi embassy in Tehran and the Saudi, the former Saudi consulate in Mashhad. The Iranians sent a team, similar team, to Saudi Arabia on Wednesday to look at the shuttered Iranian embassy in Riyadh and the Iranian consulate in Jeddah. Uh, so it sounds like they are on a path toward reopening all of those facilities. Uh, I should note uh, in closing here that the Biden administration is so chaffed about this that it apparently sent... William Burns, the CIA director who does a lot of back-channel diplomacy for this administration, and usually when he has things that are not terribly nice to say, apparently sent him to Riyadh. This is according to uh, Al Monitor and a couple of other outlets uh, to complain, basically, that the Saudis are making diplomatic progress with Iran and Syria without U.S. permission, I guess, without clearing it uh, with the U.S. Uh, the, the, the term I, I saw was blindsided. The U.S. feels blindsided, blindsided by these developments. Uh, the U.S. always ev evinces a purely rhetorical interest in 
kind of peace and stability in the Middle East, but its policies have been to uh, foment conflict and division. And this kind of works against that. You. So I can, yes, well, I can understand why the administration is, is so sad about these developments. Does this indicate anything broader about the Saudi-U.S. relationship? It does seem to be like they're uh, operating a bit more independently than in the past, or do you think it's mostly uh, hullabaloo? No, I think it does. I mean, this isn't uh, this isn't anything new. It's it's in step with things that the Saudis have been doing for a while now. I mean, they're not playing along with the oil for security bargain anymore. They're you know investing in China. They're agreeing. Uh, at least in principle, to start thinking about doing deals in currencies other than the dollar. So, no, I mean, this is this is the direction this relationship is heading. The Saudis are increasingly doing their own thing. And, uh, you know, there's not a whole lot that the U.S. can do about it, nor would I argue the U.S. should do about it. I think uh, improved diplomatic relations and stability and leading to stability in the Middle East would be a good thing. Nope, uh, disagree. The U.S. government, it's yes, exactly. The U.S. government probably disagrees with that. Uh, but, you know, maybe we should just get out of the way and let this kind of take shape. And and that sort of leads us into a, what I assume is going to be the uh, second story. Wow, Derek, letting people know how the sausage is made. Let's talk about the Yemen That's peace right. talks. Yeah, so uh, delegates from Saudi Arabia and Oman visited Sana'a on Sunday to negotiate with Houthi leaders, rebel leaders, about the possibility of bringing the war in Yemen to an end. They are discussing, and I, uh, the, I mean, they were in meetings all week. I don't know uh, when or if they've even wrapped up as we're recording this or, or when they plan to wrap up. But they're discussing reportedly a permanent ceasefire that would be announced, ideally, if they could get it, get the I's dotted and the T's crossed, not that you do that in Arabic script, but you know what I mean, that they could announce this around the Eid holiday, which starts on April 20th, give or take. Uh, that would include, in addition to the ceasefire, to include lifting restrictions on air traffic and shipping into northern Yemen. It would allow for Yemeni central bank funds to be allocated to pay public workers in areas that are uh, held by the rebels and then talks would, would proceed from there to more complex subjects about reconstruction and forming a, a transitional government, that sort of thing. Uh, it does sound like from, from some of the reporting that I have seen, it sounds like they've already essentially agreed in principle to maintain some kind of ceasefire or de facto ceasefire through at least the end of this year uh, to allow time for negotiations to proceed. But this would be obviously, you know, a permanent ceasefire, not that any ceasefire is necessarily permanent, but it would obviously be a much bigger deal and, and would be formalized in some way with, with presumably some, uh, some protections built in. Uh, so that's, uh, of note, there is supposed to be a major prisoner swap taking place this week, uh, that could serve as a kind of prelude to some of these other developments that, Swap was supposed to take place on Thursday. We're recording this on Thursday. It's been postponed until Friday and is expected to run through the weekend. Upwards of 900, I think 887 was the, the number I saw. Prisoners are to be released on both sides. So uh, that in itself is a, a fairly major development. Of course, none of this would likely be happening if it weren't for this broader Saudi-Iranian diplomatic thaw, which was, of course, mediated by... Yes, that's right. China, 
not the United States. Take uh, it. Yeah, I know. It's terrible, <laughs> terrible, <laughs> terrible what these people are up to. So that's, that's yeah, that's where well, things stand. That's, some positive, what we I think, developments. Thanks, Derek. Uh, yeah, an interesting, uh, definite, definite huge shift in regional dynamics uh, happening relatively quickly, too. Uh, let's move on to Afghanistan and uh, the UN's response to uh, the Taliban's ban on female employees. Yes, the Taliban announced, uh, I believe, was last week or maybe early this week. Uh, as you know, I was I was off last week, so uh, not entirely up on Derek dates. Derek got two days of vacation. That's late it. last late last week. The Afghan Taliban announced that it was extending a ban that it had imposed on women working for international NGOs to cover the United Nations as well as the other NGOs. The UN had been sort of exempted from this, at least at an informal level, but Taliban leadership uh, decided, no, this applies to everybody. This has caused the UN to basically uh, go back to the drawing board. They've instituted what's what they're calling a review period that will run through May 5th to consider what their Afghan operations might look like, if any, in light of this decision, it's possible that the UN will decide to just pack up and leave Afghanistan, which would be disastrous even at the low level of funding that the UN is currently getting. Humanitarian relief is pretty much all that country has uh, going for it right now. Uh, so th there's a number of reasons why this is the case. I mean, obviously, politically, ideologically, it gets difficult to convince donors, to convince uh, other aid groups to get involved in a country where they feel like they're ratifying a government that is effectively barred women from public life at this point. I mean, there's really no outlet. There's no education. There's no jobs. The, you know, even public spaces are being uh, restricted. So it's, it's difficult just on that level. It's also difficult on a practical level because it's unclear how you reach, let's say, a female-headed household with a male aid worker, since also the gender segregation in Afghanistan would preclude any kind of interaction like that. So it's just on a, on a practical level, much more difficult to distribute aid under these conditions. Uh, Afghanistan was already suffering from a dearth of resources as the international humanitarian, the, the little bit of attention that the humanitarian relief gets kind of among the, the donor community and the NGO community has almost entirely shifted to Ukraine. So this was already a difficult situation for the UN, and it's it's probably going to get substantially worse. Uh, it's interesting. There's stuff to be done on Afghanistan and Ukraine. I was just reading a speech by, I believe it was Antony Blinken, and he said that the U.S. would definitely not have been able to focus on Ukraine if it was still in Afghanistan. And uh, there's definitely some connection there. Well, between, yeah. great. <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, Derek, let's move on to North Korea. Yes, uh, the North Koreans tested a new weapon on Thursday. This is a fairly routine thing for them these days, weapons tests. But this one may be a bit different, uh, first of all, because it, I guess, triggered a, a missile scare in uh, uh, the ja northern Japanese island of Hokkaido. The authorities uh, issued warnings to civilians to take cover. That turned out to be uh, a little bit exaggerated. There was no real danger uh, from the missile. But what's uh, of particular interest, and you know, South Korean military, uh, the Japanese military, the U.S. are all still trying to assess what they saw in this weapons test. So they don't know exactly what's going on here. But it does seem like the missile that was fired 
was a longer range weapon, whether it was intermediate range or intercontinental range is unclear. Uh, and there's also some uh, reason to believe that it may have been a, a solid fueled projectile. Now that's uh, interesting because the North Koreans have tested solid fuel projectiles before, but they've always been short range. Solid fuel missiles are uh, of note because they can be stored fully fueled. The the solid fuel is stable enough to do that, which means you don't have to spend a lot of time in the advance of a potential missile launch, kind of fueling these things up and leaving them out in the open where they could be uh, hit in a preemptive strike, for example. So it would significantly increase the North Korean military's potential for a very fairly rapid long range, let's say nuclear strike, if that's what they wanted to do for some reason. Uh, so it is of note. Uh, again, it's too soon to say for sure what exactly they tested. Everybody's still kind of scrambling to try and figure it out, but that does seem to be where a lot of the speculation is. Thanks, Derek. Let's move on to Ethiopia and the new ethnic violence in the region of Amhara. Yes, last week, Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed announced a new plan to bring regional special forces commands under the federal security forces command structure. This has raised a lot of opposition in Amhara, where the regional special forces fought in the Tigray War that just ended last November. They're occupying still part of the territory of what at least used to be considered Tigray, uh, the western part of what used to be, or what is or used to be considered the Tigray region. It's unclear at this point. Uh, the Amhara people, there, there seems to be a strain at least of, of thinking uh, among the Amhara populace that their special forces are the only thing that's protecting their region from reprisal attacks from Tigrayan fighters or from the uh, from attacks by Oromo militias. The Oromo Liberation Army has been active in the Amhara region. These are you know sort of long-standing inter-ethnic disputes in Ethiopia. There's also a feeling that I think uh, Abi has given the Amharan government and Amhara the region kind of the short end of the stick in terms of his settlement uh, of the Tigray conflict. They don't feel like they've gotten uh, their fair share for having helped out in that that war. So uh, since Abi's announcement, there have been a, a number of protests. There have been clashes between Amhara special forces and federal police. Uh, at least a couple, at least one occasion, I believe, the police tried to arrest uh, a unit of Amhara Special Forces fighters, and that sparked uh, some sort of a battle. A few people have been killed. There have been reports of uh, wider violence. It's it's sketchy as anything kind of coming out of Ethiopia tends to be because of the media environment, but it does seem like there is a an emerging conflict here that could turn into another ethnic struggle between the federal government and and one of the the country's regions which is probably the last thing i would i would speculate is the last thing that that ethiopia needs right now thanks derek and we'll of course keep everyone updated but uh from terrible news to maybe the best news of the 21st century jake we need the overture of 1812 you know really apocal news because doesn't finally nato doesn't NATO have an anthem we, that we could? Yeah, Jake, play, play, the, uh, play the NATO anthem and also sing it, and, and maybe don't yeah, do, exactly, do it like a sort of rock version, uh, dance version. <laughs> but 
finally, after years of everyone waiting, Derek, tell us what just happened. Uh, Finland, on April 4th, officially became a member of NATO, 31st member of NATO, to be specific. Uh, this has been uh, in the cards for a while now. The the uh, the two holdout uh, parliaments, Hungary and Turkey, both finally in the last couple of weeks approved Finland's membership. So it's a done deal. They they officially flew the flag. They put the flag up at NATO headquarters and everything. Uh, Finland is a NATO member. Its entry. Roughly doubles the border between NATO and Russia, which should make for some really fun times. Uh, the Finnish military is relatively formidable, actually, as European militaries go, and basically has been preparing for a Russian invasion. I mean, that's what it's sort of oriented around, is uh, a hypothetical Russian invasion. So they, they'll slot right in uh, where to where NATO is these days in terms of its uh, orientation. Uh Sweden, of course, which uh, applied for NATO membership at the same time as Finland, that that application is still in limbo. The Turkish government is refusing for a variety of reasons, variety of grievances to consider it. The Hungarian government is also refusing over what they claim have been insulting statements made about Hungary by by various Swedish politicians. Uh, I suspect that if Turkey moves on this, uh, Hungary will move as well. But uh, I don't see Turkey moving on it unless possibly the uh, uh, you know Erdogan and, and his uh, coalition lose May's election. In that case, there, there could be some movement. Uh, but I don't know anytime soon. If, if that doesn't change, I, I don't see it happening anytime soon. So yeah, uh, basically, uh, that's the news. Finland is now in NATO. Thank God, because now we're going on to our new Cold War section. And we're going to start with friend of the pod, Emmanuel Macron's trip to China. Yes, so Macron, uh, apparently, he visited China last week. He had a very nice, well, by all photographic evidence that I saw, a very nice visit with Xi Jinping. They walked through gardens. They, you know, shook hands, had meetings, et cetera, et cetera. He's, he got into a bit of hot water, uh, because basically he blabbed to some media outlets about his ideas of European strategic autonomy, specifically as they have to do with China. And basically, you know, told, uh, there was a French outlet, uh, Politico's European, uh, service he was doing interviews with with these outlets and essentially said that europe should not be the vassal he used the term vassal i believe of the united states with respect to china that the that the eu should form a third pole in world affairs on the same level as the us and china and not beholden to one or the other he said some things about Taiwan that raised some hackles about Europe not necessarily getting involved in a conflict over Taiwan because it's not necessarily Europe's problem and that the European government shouldn't just let the U.S. suck them into that particular conflict. Um, none of this, I think, is particularly uh, out there or unique. There's a lot of sentiment like this across Europe. Uh, it's not particularly wrong, I would say. I mean, there's a piece in uh, for, at Quincy from Eldar Mamadov, uh, who you know, works in uh, European politics, who I think rightly said, you know, if there's any hope for the United States to 
change its foreign policy or anybody who wants to see a shift in foreign policy in the U.S. has to be hoping that the Europeans will stop free riding on the United States security budget and start taking care of their own responsibilities, which I entirely agree with. I think Macron's problem is that he said these things out loud on a trip to China in the most inelegant way possible. And so what's happened is he's wound up creating a backlash in Washington and across Europe where people are quite upset with what he said. And there's a a sort of rally around the U.S. thing happening in Europe now, which ironically does damage to the idea of European strategic autonomy, which is the thing that Macron is supposedly interested in. So that's, uh, that's basically where things stand. He's, uh, uh, he's put his foot, I think, a bit in his mouth. Thanks, Derek. And uh, let's talk about the document leak and, and what happened in the United States with the leak, what it said, and why it's important. So, yeah, this has uh, been going on apparently via Discord and then kind of filtering out to, to social media, other social media sites uh, in recent weeks. Some of these documents may have been circulating for for months, apparently, from what I've seen. Uh, there's a, a, just a tranche of classified U.S. documents, hundreds of them potentially, uh, that have showed up online. Um, they're, they cover all manner of, uh, of things. A lot of them have to do with the war in Ukraine, and we can talk about that specifically in a moment. But a lot of them, you know, some of them have to do with Russia. Some of them have to do with China. Some of them have to do with uh, you know, other U.S. with U.S. allies, which is where things get really dicey. Uh, there's a couple of things. I don't I haven't seen anything in here that's like blowing anybody's mind or is kind of, you know, really pulling the curtain back on anything. But but a couple of things that bear kind of monitoring here. One is uh, the documents that had to do with Russia potentially reveal the places where U.S. intelligence has penetrated the Russian government. And so that that could be undesirable, let's say, from Washington's perspective to have these things out there and uh, giving the Russian government a chance to kind of look at them and see see where they have leaks that need to be plugged. The other thing that is of, a, of concern is that a lot of these documents uh, had to, to do with what seems to be the result of the U.S. spying on its allies, South Korea, Turkey, uh, Israel, uh, Canada, I think even. So, you know, n- not, not the kinds of things that this necessarily, necessarily surprising. You assume the United States is spying on everybody. Everybody spies on everybody, I guess. Uh, but when these revelations do come out, it, it requires a bit of, uh, scrambling to kind of assuage the allies who are now upset that they've been, you know, shown to be, uh, that they're getting spied on by the U.S. And according to uh, a few outlets, the Biden administration has been sort of scrambling to talk to its, uh, its partners and, and say, you know, we're, this isn't, you know, don't believe everything you read or whatever. I mean, you know, just very kind of, you know, trying to, to appease these countries. Uh, uh, the, They've been apparently particularly concerned about the Five Eyes Intelligence Consortium. That's the U.S., Canada, United Kingdom, Australia, and New Zealand, uh, who all share a a great deal of intelligence. There's a lot of concern, obviously, among those other members that uh, if the U.S. intelligence community has a major leak in it, as it appears to, that their intelligence, their own intelligence, what they share with the United States is not secure uh, so that's required a bit of a bit of scrambling, but you know, just in general, I think this seems like more uh, uncomfortable than disastrous for the United States. 
uh, who's to say? I mean, media outlets are still sort of parsing through all these documents and uh, you, you see uh, a couple of new stories every day basically coming out of, of you know, different uh, things that were in here. There is an investigation into the group, the online group, the Discord group where this stuff started, where this stuff originated before it kind of filtered out more widely. Uh, there is a, a the, apparently they're circulating around a member of the Massachusetts Air National Guard. That's according to the New York Times. I don't know uh, any more than that. Uh, there is a piece at the New York Times. I haven't read uh, past the first paragraph. I'm not sure I want to know any more than that. Uh, but that's where the investigation stands. They do seem to have somebody that they're looking at as the the leaker here. So, uh, yeah, that's that's uh, what I would say is my assessment. Now, the the interesting stuff, uh, some of the interesting stuff does have to do with Ukraine. We can talk about that if you want to if you want to get into that. You know what, Derek? I want to get into it. Let's talk about okay, it. Let's also good. talk about Seymour Hirsch. Yeah. So on Ukraine, then, uh, the great document leak could have some repercussions for the spring offensive that the Ukrainian military has supposedly been planning. It one For one thing, there are documents in this leak that appear to reveal some of the planning for that offensive. For example, that the idea was to uh, which again isn't terribly surprising, but nevertheless, it's, you know, sort of conf- confirmation that the plan was to attack the Russians in kind of the southeastern part of Ukraine to try and sever the land bridge between the Donbass and Crimea, potentially maybe even kind of threatening Crimea, although that seems like a stretch. But the Russians have apparently been building new trench works and other defensive fortifications along the, the Crimea's land. Uh, connections to Ukraine. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. The other thing to note here, however, is one, at least one of the documents was included an assessment by the U.S. intelligence community of Ukraine's chances of actually achieving anything in this potential offensive. And the conclusion was probably not. They're probably not going to, uh, going to make any, many territorial gains. Yeah, I think modest conflict was the term really. that, that was used. Um, uh, you know, and meanwhile, the Biden administration publicly is sort of talking up, uh, oh, this offensive's coming and the Ukrainians, you know, they're really, they're going to get, they got all these Western weapons and they're really in position to, you know, kick some Russian tail, whatever. In, in private, they're saying this is probably not going to, going to accomplish very much. And, you get the sense that it might almost be better not to do it because so much hype has been laid into this supposed, uh, supposedly a forthcoming offensive that if it, if it fizzles out, that's going to, I think, significantly affect public opinion, if not political uh, views and, you know, it's kind of political policy in the West uh, in terms of how much longer are we, you know, how much longer can, can our government support this war and should the Ukrainians start thinking about negotiating, even if that means making territorial sacrifices? So uh, you, you get the sense that that uh, Washington will almost prefer the Ukrainians just hold off, uh, because of course nobody in Washington or Kiev is interested in making any territorial sacrifices at this point. Uh, so that seems to be the sense that I get from these documents. Now, the Hirsch piece going in a different direction. Of course, people remember Hirsch, Seymour Hirsch. Uh, reported uh, had that report on the Nord Stream bombing several weeks ago, uh, pointing the finger at the U.S. Uh, the U.S. has thrown up, and the New York Times and a couple other media outlets have thrown up these alternative theories, uh, seemingly in response to Hirsch's reporting. None of them have held up 
very well. Hirsch's reporting is, of course, uh, still rests on anonymous sources, still rests on some uncertain, unconfirmable details, but has held up a lot better, certainly, than the counter-narratives that have been proposed. Well, Hirsch has a new piece this week at his Substack alleging that the Ukrainian government has been taking U.S. money, U.S. funds uh, to buy, to purchase diesel fuel for the military and has been purchasing discounted diesel fuel from none other than the Russians uh, and skimming then, you know, generals and, and officials, including presumably uh, President Volodymyr Zelensky, skimming money out of the out of those funds the the money that they're saving i guess by going with this cheap discounted russian fuel uh to the tune he suggested of 400 million dollars uh which sounds outrageous but you know that's a lot of potatoes not out of the realm of possibility i guess and ukraine does certainly have a broad corruption problem uh folks may recall earlier this year zelensky went on a bit of an anti-corruption purge According to Hirsch, that was the result of a visit to Kiev again by William Burns, the CIA director, in which he kind of laid the hand, put the hammer down a little bit, uh, just said, you know, this is unseemly. Not that the U.S. is necessarily opposed to the corruption on principle. More, it was, it sounds more like, yeah, don't make you know, it you're public. Just, yeah, don't make it public. It's or like, you've, you've it's gone, like you're doing are too in much. Open relationship, like, you know, don't do it in public. Yeah, right. <laughs> just, just, you know, kind of, kind of be quiet about it. But you guys are kind of going over the top here and it's embarrassing. So you got to, you got to do something about it. Zelensky fired like 10 people, supposedly the 10, uh, m- m- you know, the 10 people who showed up at, uh, Ray Liotta's bar and Goodfellas with the, the pink Cadillac and the fur coat. Uh, and Robert De Niro had to, you know, tell him to take it back. Uh, that's, you know, that's basically the, the folks who got sacked here, uh, the ones who were, you know, really just over the top with their uh, kind of profligate spending. So he told uh, them not to again, buy Cadillac. Yeah, I told you, you know, I told you not to buy anything, you know, uh, take it back, take it back. Um, again, you know, this is the stuff is based on anonymous sources. You can have all the criticisms you want, I guess. Uh, I, I don't think it can be dismissed. It's impossible to for, for me sitting here to evaluate it one way or the other. Uh, but I think it's it's certainly getting attention already. Uh, so you know, I think it's I think it's worth t- at least mentioning it. Thank you, Derek, and everyone. Thanks for listening. Uh, and please actually like and review us. We've been at Substack for a year. Uh, we really thank everyone for following us. But you know, that always helps with the liking and reviewing. So please do so. And you know, also if you have the extra funds, we do a lot of cool bonus content, specials, bonus episodes, bonus series. We've got a lot of exciting stuff coming up. So please remember to like, subscribe, and that's pretty much it. Thank you. Bye. Bye.